a warm welcome. It's really uh, lovely to be doing something with um, uh, lots of people I, I don't know. So I'm Richard. I should introduce myself. Uh, I'm Richard from Hope Church. And, uh, but it's lovely to do something with people from all sorts of different churches. Inevitably, that means I, I haven't asked, I, to be honest, I haven't even asked our speakers exactly what their theology is. No one's passed a test uh, cycling proficiency or anything like that. Uh, so so um, what, what I do know is all of our speakers this year um, love the Lord Jesus with all their hearts and they take the Bible seriously. So what that means is sometimes someone might say something that's a little bit different to what your or my church says. That's perfectly okay because we're allowed to disagree and uh, one day when we meet the Lord he can put us right. But I have a, a suspicion that on that great day we won't be so bothered. Uh, so, but it's good to be made to think, isn't it? Uh, it's very good to be made to think. So that, that's what we want to do, make each other uh, uh, think and go a little bit deeper than we could normally through Sunday morning. So throughout this year we'll be uh, doing an, an introduction, a bit of an overview uh, on the New Testament, and we'll look at some uh, big chunky theological themes. I'm so thrilled that Michael, Michael Brearley from the Cathedral, is with us uh, today. So he'll be speaking on, on the Trinity. Um, and uh, next, next month, um, Pete Reed is coming. Pete uh, is a Pentecostal uh, minister from Elim. He works at the Elim International College. He's the deputy head honcho. Um, <laughs> Vice principal, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, is a fine Bible teacher, has taught very well, led a number of churches in the UK, teaches widely in this country and um, overseas for Elim uh, Global. So uh, we're going to make a start there. Do you need to press any buttons? Done it. Oh, it's going already. Oh, for those listening on the tape, sorry. Yeah, it's just my general glowingness, really. But, uh, no. Good. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Yes, that's, seeing my face might not be a good thing. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say compared to Jim's face. <laughs> good. Well, we better start then. So we're looking at the uh, Gospel of John. Uh, I think if you manage to register... Uh, some would have got some very full notes. I'm aware some people find very full notes totally overwhelming, uh, too many words. Uh, that's fine. Just ignore them. Some people uh, like them. Uh, some of us are really good at concentrating for a long time. If others of us need to have a snooze uh, halfway through, uh, I really won't, won't be offended. Uh, just uh, pick up what you can pick up. So uh, we'll make a start with the Gospel of John. Now, scholars being scholars... They're only exceeded by philosophers and um, perhaps politicians for arguing. Uh, so scholars being scholars like to argue about who wrote um, John. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it was obviously someone very close to Jesus. So there are all sorts of suggestions. Um, John, the son of Zebedee. John, <coughs> an elder in Ephesus. The Apostle John, and then theologians being what they are, and scholars being what they are, they then argue about whether all of those are the same person anyway. And uh, there'll be a list of books at the end, and if you want to read en endless, and perhaps for two or three people, interesting argument about that, uh, then you're very uh, welcome. 
but uh, I don't really want to talk about it for very long. The existence of John's Gospel is spoken about in Egypt uh, on manuscripts by about 150 AD. <coughs> and uh, was given, excuse me, I'm fisherman powered this morning, uh, was given authority by that time uh, along with all the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, sort of travelled around the Mediterranean and was generally accepted fairly early on in the history of the church. So there's a document uh, called the Muratorian Fragment, uh, which is thought to be the uh, earliest list of New Testament books and why they were deemed to be uh, good to uh, be accepted as scripture in the canon of the Bible. And uh, uh, this is what that uh, document says. The fourth gospel is that of John, one of the disciples. When his fellow disciples and bishops entreated him, he said, fast now with me for the space of three days and let us recount to each other whatever may be revealed to us. On the same night was revealed to Andrew, one of the apostles, that John should narrate all things in his own name as he called them to mind. So that's one of the earliest references to uh, the Apostle John being the author. A chap called Irenaeus, he recalls that he was told by the person that discipled him, his mentor, was another chap called Polycarp, <laughs> if you get me. Uh, and uh, Polycarp was actually mentored by the Apostle John. So, uh, so although it looks like a long time after the life of Jesus, uh, of course, people, Jesus died at 35. Uh, so young men then lived for quite some time. So, so Irenaeus was told by someone that was mentored by John that John had disputed with particular heretics, uh, a chap called Cerinthus, uh, and that the gospel of John came out of needing to defend the gospel against heresies. Uh, so forgive me all these quotes from scholars. Uh, Jerome, who is a 4th century historian and uh, theologian, he translated scripture. Uh, he said that John was asked by the bishop of Asia to write an account of Jesus' life, particularly against heretics, especially, he says, against the growing dogma of the Ebionites. Don't you just hate those Ebionites? Um, anyway, they asserted that Jesus didn't exist before he was born of Mary, so he had no pre-existence. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, Jerome says that's why John was compelled to write his gospel to maintain Jesus' uh, nativity. Uh, and then people argue about when it was finished, but it's thought to be finished uh, quite early, sometime between 70 and 100. The particular emphasis that John has is on Jesus' understanding of himself. So Matthew, Mark and Luke focus very much on, on the story. It's what you might write if you wanted to write a story of someone uh, you know. Uh, John particularly emphasises Jesus' understanding of himself. So Matthew, Mark and Luke are often referred to as the syn synoptics, um, thought to have some um, sources in common with one another. Uh, but John is very different to that. And it, it, it's quite uh, striking how different it is. So some things are completely missing. For example, uh, other than the first chapter in John, which is usually read out if you have a carol service, sooner or later someone, someone will talk about, it, um, uh, about the first chapter of John, won't they? Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
um, that light coming into the darkness and the darkness not understanding it. But there's nothing about the conception. There's no. There's nothing for a, a children's nativity in there. There's no angels. There's no shepherd. Uh, there's none of that there. There's nothing about the angel coming to Mary uh, about his conception. There's nothing about his. Uh, 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 much about baptism there's nothing about the temptations quite a few things that you think of if you try to note down things in Jesus's life are missing from John there's no story of him casting out demons no account of the temptation Uh, the transfiguration is missing Uh, the struggle in Gethsemane where he sweated blood that's missing Uh, uh, the ascension it's just not there it seems that those things didn't suit John's purpose and uh, other things are in comparison to other gospels just not emphasized there are only seven miracles and that word seven the more you study John the more you keep seeing seven you start going slightly loopy Uh, but there's uh, there are seven miracles uh, rather than in the other gospel you, you read Mark or Luke, there's sort of miracle after miracle after miracle. John selects seven. There's little mention of the kingdom of God, which if you read Matthew is a, is a huge theme. Jesus is always saying parables, the kingdom's like this, the kingdom's like that. It doesn't, it's only mentioned twice in the gospel of John. Once to Nicodemus, unless you get born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Uh, and once at, during his trial... Uh, when Pilate's worried about whether Jesus is a revolutionary uh, and Jesus says, no, my, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would fight. Uh, they're the only two uh, mentions. That, that doesn't mean those things aren't biblically important. It just means that for John's purposes, uh, he doesn't include them for whatever reason. Perhaps more interesting is the, the additional things that are only found in John. Now, there are seven miracles in John and five of them are only there uh, totally new to his gospel not anywhere else uh, the water into wine a hundred and Jesus um, John selects that story Jesus's first miracle at the wedding in Cana 120 gallons I mean you'd invite him to your wedding wouldn't you <laughs> well I would anyway uh, and not just wine but the very best wine some of my uh, African friends really struggle uh, with the thought of uh, Jesus producing 120 gallons of, of wine, because they're uh, teetotal, of course, but which is fine. But Jesus uh, didn't seem to be. That's all I'll say. <laughs> uh, uh, the healing of uh, the man beside the pool of Bethesda, that uh, amazing and, and slightly mysterious story. Do you, do you remember it? The, the man was lying in a, a colonnaded pool in the shade, uh, uh, John records it was by the Sheep Gate. He seems very familiar with the, uh, the, the, the alleyways of Jerusalem uh, and the story of, uh, of how the, the water was stirred from time to time. But the, the man says to Jesus, I just don't have anyone to, to get me into this pool that I can be healed. And then uh, Jesus comes out with, with the very famous phrase, uh, get up, take up your mat, get up and, and walk. That's only recorded uh, in John. Uh, the, the healing of a, a nobleman's son is only recorded in John. Um, do you remember the nobleman came to Jesus and said, will you, will you heal, heal my son? Uh, and Jesus basically said, go on your way, he's healed. And when he reaches home, uh, it's ex- at exactly the time Jesus spoke, uh, this, this lad got, got healed. That's only in John's gospel. Um, 
that lovely story of um, the Jesus making spitting on the ground. It's a very earthy story, isn't it? Jesus, it's not how you choose to be healed, but I guess if you want to be healed, uh, needs must. And uh, Jesus spitting on the ground and making mud and, and putting it in the, the guy's eyes and then him going on his way and washing and, and being healed. That's, that's only in the Gospel of John. And, and, of course, the raising of Lazarus, which takes some, some time in the Gospel of John. And that, that marvellous verse in that account where Jesus it says Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible, isn't it? in uh, John 11 verse 35 that those miracles are only in John so there's there's some wonderful stories we wouldn't have uh, except that John wrote them down in his gospel and he uses uh, the word sign for all of those the other gospel writers don't use that word uh, because his particular thing is what what do these miracles point to a sign points to something and John is using them to say these point to who Jesus is, and, and he wants to provoke his readers to make choices. Do I believe that's who Jesus is? What, are, what do these signs actually uh, mean? So although he records less miracles, they're very important because they're there to say, this is who Jesus is. Uh, another addition is um, the addition of... I, I think it says on the screen individuals. It's really bits of conversations with individuals that aren't anywhere else. That there's a uh, Peter's the, the, the feet washing is in other gospels, but that little conversation which I love, where where Peter shows his character and no oh, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. I, I, I like to. I don't know what you're like. I like to picture the story and Jesus is going around washing feet and, and Peter's having. Uh, having none of it, you, you're the boss, I should, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And then Jesus says, well, you know, I've got to wash you or else really you're saying you want nothing to do with me. And, and then of B, Peter being Peter, he's either all in or all out. It's that sort of character, isn't he? Peter's, oh, OK, pour it all over me, wash me. <laughs> it's OK, Peter, you're getting carried away now. Uh, uh, but but uh, that little conversation in John chapter 13 is, is only in John. And shows that somebody was right there, uh, just recording it, all those little uh, details, recalling them to mind and writing them in the gospel. The conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan lady, is only in John's gospel. You remember the the dialogue where where um, he he says, "Would you get me something to drink?" It's the wrong time of day to be at a well, so he he knew something was up. Would you get me something to drink? And uh, and she says. Um, well, if you knew if you knew who I was, i.e., a Samaritan, an unclean person, that you, as a Jewish rabbi, shouldn't be speaking to, you, you wouldn't ask me for a drink. And he totally ignores that and says, "Well, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink that would satisfy your thirst forever." And it's just some amazing evangelistic dialogue goes on, and then there's some little asides about where you're supposed to worship, and and and, and then he does the call your husband, and well, I haven't got a husband. Yeah, I know you've had four, uh, and now you're you're with some other guy, uh, and that dial that wonderful dialogue, terrific example of how to engage with people, is only uh, in John, as is the Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus coming uh, by night and having this discussion 
master and what must I do when you've got to be born again. All of that. They're, they're only in John. So John gives these little dialogues much more uh, prominence. If you read Matthew, it's loads of parables, isn't it? And the Sermon on the Mount and sto- lots of stories, uh, loads and loads of that. And lots of this was written to fulfill that and that was written to fulfill that. Uh, we'll do that in an, another session uh, with, with Peter. Uh, but John is not like that. There's these long dialogues, all in private conversations. There are also uh, seven huge statements about Jesus, and they're not recorded in any other gospel. The big I am statements. I am the bread of life or the living bread. I'm, I'm the light of the world. I am the door. We'll, we'll come back to some of these. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Uh, John, John uses these to show how, how Jesus viewed himself. So there's what he does, these seven signs, and then there are these seven sayings with Jesus saying, this is what I've done, this is who I say I am. And he's, he, John's supporting his, his claims by the signs. Do you see what I mean? They, they support one another he's making a case and forcing the reader or trying to force the reader to say now now do I believe that am I going to follow that sign do I really believe who he is who he says he is and certainly if you read through John's gospel and I I recommend you do it's great a great book it's very difficult to say oh Jesus was just a really good man it's very very difficult to do that really good men don't go around saying I am the way the way I'm the truth, I'm the life. Really good men don't go around saying, I'm the living bread from heaven. That's not what really good, bonkers people say that kind of thing. Uh, so he's, he's forcing the reader to, to, to face up to who Jesus is. There's also different, uh, for those who are interested in such things, a different geographical emphasis. So Matthew, Mark and Luke use approximately it's thought about 30 months where Jesus if you look at where he is he's in the north of Israel in the region of of Galilee uh, followed by six months and and uh, gospels like Mark get to about halfway through uh, and it's all focused on Jesus's journey up to Jerusalem that's their sort of structure that they write with whereas John is nearly all of it is set in the south of the country that's where Cana was, his first miracle. And then John emphasises the time where Jesus went to Jerusalem to the feasts. As a, uh, a, a Jewish person, uh, he had some duty to go to feasts. And Jesus did his duty, possibly as many as three times a year, to the Feast of Tabernacles and the Passover and the dedication of the temple. And, and he ignores much of what went on in the north. There's even a different style so uh, uh, for those who like stats and that sort of thing, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the feeding of the 5,000 have got 53 words in common with each other. Hence the theory that they, either one of them was the source or they used another source to draw from. Whereas John writes exactly the same story and only uses eight of the same words. <laughs> he, he even uses a different word for fish. That's, so uh, I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, that kind of thing, but I think it's interesting. There, there's a different style in that he does, he talks, there's chapters long disputes. Yeah, uh, we won't follow it all through, but cha- chapter uh, eight is one example of that. There's, in the um, 
In Matthew, Mark and Luke, longer teaching sessions are quite rare, other than the Sermon on the Mount. But even that's in quite neat little sections. But when you get to John, there's endless arguments about, uh, about for example, who Jesus' father is. Long, I mean, three chapters worth of disputes about it. It may be, I find this interesting, it may be that Jesus actually changed his teaching style in the South. Because he was more involved with disputes and arguments with the Judeans about who he was. As he gets nearer Jerusalem, there's more argument, more conflict. And John particularly talks about that. <coughs> so John, Jesus often talked about God being his father. And um, he talks about that in chapter 8, verse 19, for, for one example. Uh, and the Pharisees, when Jesus is talking about uh, God, his father, the Pharisees say, well, where is your father? Uh, most scholars think that's an inference to the fact that Jesus, it was, uh, they, they suspected Jesus couldn't talk about it much because of rumours that he was illegitimate. Well, who's you, where's your father then? Which for Jewish people is very important, knowing your, knowing your ancestry. We, who's your father? Where, you know, show us your birth certificate. Where, you know, who's, who, where are you from? Where's your, show us your family tree. Uh, to which Jesus says, rather than trying to answer that, well, actually, an angel appeared to my mum, and he didn't, do, he didn't go down that line. Instead, he says, well, actually, you, you don't know me or my father. If you knew, and if you really knew who I was, then it would mean that you knew my father. And then he, he says, uh, you're far from the father. And it's actually quite hard to follow it through. There's three chapters of, of, of it. Um, uh, uh, and then they said, well, of course, our, our father, our, we're really, we're related to Abraham. He's that, we're kosher. We're, we're, we're related from Abraham. Uh, and that's when Jesus then says, well, before Abraham was, I am. Which is, uh, A, he's using the name for God, the great I am. He's, it's a huge claim. And they understood that because if you read it, they immediately want to stone him which happens a few times in John's Gospel. They wanted to pick up stone and stone him. Uh, so there's these long disputes that go on that aren't in any of the other uh, Gospels. And John records uh, it's, it's quite, uh, that the Jews therefore hated Jesus because he was claiming God as his father. Uh, just a little aside there, um, because we live in a part of the world that's had thousands of years of anti-semitism um it's uh, often the bible uses the phrase the jews and the jews and the jews uh, 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 it's the jews the, the gospels record that crucified jesus this misunderstood has resulted in anti-semitism whereby people from christian cultures have said well it was you lot that crucified jesus and, and so on and so forth for thousands of years that um attitude has continued it's important just to uh, note that it's likely that that didn't refer that term that, that this time didn't refer to Israel as a whole nation but rather to the southerners the Judeans uh, around the time of Solomon the nation split into two so it's Israel in the north and, and Judah in the south which is named after the biggest tribe that will remain down in the south uh, that's going way back in, in history. If we do a second year on the Old Testament, we'll, we'll look at that then. Um, but, but So Jesus is using the term of, it was the southerners. He seemed to have more favour up in the north and less uh, in the south. So the Judeans, as distinct from the Galileans in the north, 
where their attitude was slightly more positive. But so that as he came south towards the city, towards Jerusalem, the conflict increases, particularly from the from the Judeans. So I, I just mentioned that because I because well, I find it interesting. So anyway, if, it, if you don't, sorry about that. Uh, the fifth difference is there's a whole different outlook. John, John does record Jews, uh, Jesus' attendance at the Jewish feasts, but he seems to be particularly trying to communicate to people with a, with a Greek worldview. We've, we've all got a worldview, we just don't know that we have. Uh, until you go to another country and realise... They think totally differently to us. I don't know if it, how many have ever done that, and you think I don't, I don't, I don't get this. You can go to South America and wait to be invited somewhere, and you you, you won't be invited because everyone expects you to turn up unannounced. Whereas in our country, if someone turns up unannounced, you you think why well, they why well, they just turned up unannounced and expect to come in and have a meal? Cheeky things. But that's because we're we're Western and lock ourselves in tiny rooms to keep warm. <laughs> so do you see what I mean? So everyone's got a different worldview. Uh, and it's thought that John was written to particularly help people with a Greek, it's called Hellenistic, but a Greek Roman kind of worldview. So they had a different way of looking at the world. Uh, John was based in Ephesus. If you ever get the chance to visit Ephesus, it's in Western Turkey. You can do a tour of the ruins and it's a, it's a really interesting. You see some fairly revolting, multi-breasted idols of Diana, goddess of the Ephesians. And you can go and visit what's thought to be John's house. Whether it was John's house, I really don't know. But it's a really interesting uh, tour. But in Ephesus, uh, it was a cultural melting pot. And obviously, Christianity began with Jews, with those who first witnessed Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, but as it spread to Gentiles, it was spreading into uh, cultures that thought very differently. Uh, and understanding that helps us understand uh, John. So, if you were a Jewish person, they, they thought along a timeline. Does that make sense? In a, on a horizontally, as it were. So, this is what happened. I was born in 1960. My birth certificate actually says 1660. It's a typo, so I'm doing quite well for my age. But I was born in 1660, and uh, then I was educated here, and then I went there, and then I went here, and then I went my wife, and then we had uh, some children, and, and then this happened. And it's a, it's, a, it's a horizontal line. Whereas Greek thinking about, not just about your life, but about the world, was, was more up and down. Now, this doesn't mean anything to you. Don't worry about it. But it was that they were concerned about... What's happening in the spiritual realm and what's happening in the physical realm? There's what's happening spiritually, what's happening fleshly? What's above, what's below, what's permanent, what's temporary? So they viewed the world in a very different way to us. And that explains other things in the New Testament. Uh, how, how come they were, didn't care about sexual morality in, in Corinth? Well, well some people... Some people were saying, well, it doesn't really matter because what's spiritual matters. What you do with your body doesn't matter at all. Do, do you see? Because that's not spiritual. That's just fleshly. So there's these, that kind of way of thinking. And John uses, uh, the, the, the first three Gospels use that birth, the angel coming, birth. It's a, it's a t kind of timeline story. Uh, but John doesn't do so much of that obviously he's got Jesus arriving and it ends with his death and resurrection but it's it seems 
for most of us, it's a bit more abstract. It's, it's what I'll call up and down. So he says verses that some of us might struggle with. So um, chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ever gone up into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man who came from heaven. So it's sort of, do you see, it's, it's a different, we think, some of us, if we're not conceptual thinkers, we think, what? What's he saying? But it's, it's a different way of thinking. Or the bread of God above is the one who comes down from heaven to give life, spiritual life, from above to this world, below. Do you see? It's a different way of, of thinking and expressing. Perhaps the most famous one, God, who's spiritual and above, loves this world, which is earthly and below, so much that he sent Jesus from above down so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal, which is an above thing, eternal life. So it's a different way of thinking and expressing himself. So there's, there's Jewish culture in there as well. Um, so, some of the phrases are actually Aramaic, like Rabboni and uh, Cephas for Peter. So this is, a, this is a person that wrote this is someone that's familiar and able to communicate to both cultures. Does that, does that make sense? Interrupt me. If, if, if something I say makes no sense at all, obviously I haven't said it clearly enough so just wave a hand at me so so anyway so it's a different that there's some of the differences uh, who was john well it seems john was a fishing man he had a fishing business in galilee in the north uh, connections possibly even a home in jerusalem certainly he seems to know the the layout of jerusalem very very well he was at home as i've said in the jewish rural world and in the greek roman urban world as well uh, in that he seems different to most of the other disciples who seem to have come from the north uh, with the possible exception of Judas Iscariot because Iscariot is a town in the south his father was doing quite well he had hired servants we read that in Mark's gospel uh, he had some wealth it seems as if his mother was one of those who sponsored Jesus and his disciples so often we think all Jesus's followers were dirt poor Galilean peasants but his actually his family were doing okay uh, uh, and that's who he was it, there's a speculative bit in the notes some some people think he may have even been Jesus's first cousin and uh, so <laughs> if you like that kind of speculative bible study there's in in the notes there's three sets of verses and you have to keep comparing it and it starts with who's at the cross and uh, it entirely depends on whether the gospel writers listed all the women at the cross or if they all just say different ones. Does that, does that make sense? So if you compare the verses in Mark with the verses in Matthew, Salome seems to be the wife of Zebedee, who is the mum of James and uh, John. And then you have to compare that with John, where instead of Salome, it says Jesus's mother's sister. So you have to be a genealogist to uh, to look into it. But if they're the same women, then then it would seem that James and John were possibly Jesus's first cousin. But it depends if the gospel writers just pick different ones or does, do you see what I mean? Or if they're the same. Anyway, you can look up the verses to your heart's content. It won't change your life, but it's quite interesting. Uh, John was certainly Jesus' closest friend, part of an inner circle with James and Peter who were particularly close 
to Jesus. It's John, the beloved disciple, who's reclining and leaning on uh, Jesus at the Last Supper because they ate on couches in those days rather than upright seats, which we tend to do. Uh, he, he, it was John that on the cross, uh, Jesus entrusts his mother to him. Woman, your son. Son, your mum. Uh, that, that, you've got to be close to someone to do that, haven't you? Uh, it was John that got first to the tomb. It, it was John when they were fishing. Do you remember they were fishing all night, didn't catch anything? Uh, it was John that, when he's hailed from the shore, recognises Jesus' voice and says, Wow, it's the Lord! And then, then Peter, who being dramatic, who dives in and uh, swims to shore and so on. So a close friend of Jesus. John modestly never actually says, and it's me, John, I'm the beloved one. That's really not uh, his style. But from earliest times, Christians have recognised him as this figure and the author. Although, as I said right at the beginning, people like to argue about that kind of thing uh, a lot. Uh, certainly the letters of John uh, are consistent with uh, some of the themes in the Gospel of John, uh, particularly his emphasis on, on love, uh, which is mentioned also 25 times in the letter. Tradition says he was the last living one of the 12 uh, disciples, writing his Gospel as an old man uh, in Ephesus. We know from the end of, uh, the, end of the Gospel there was even a rumour, he lived so long, uh, there was a rumour that went round that he wouldn't die until Jesus uh, returned. And, and he makes it clear, he says at the end of the gospel, there's a rumour going round that he's not going to die until Jesus returns. But Jesus didn't actually say that, folks. Uh, he's sort of getting ready so that they won't be too shocked when he pops off and they have a funeral service. Uh, so he was the last living of the disciples, it would seem. And this intimacy with Jesus uh, seems to be reflected out on a, a puzzling thing, which, uh, which is it's very hard to know when Jesus' direct speech finishes in John because they didn't have quotation marks in the way we have uh, when we write English uh, so for example in John 3:16, with this argument uh, argument and discussion with Nicodemus it's very hard to know when does Jesus stop speaking uh, and, and at what point does this become John saying this is what Jesus meant and paraphrasing what he meant it's really hard <coughs> To tell, he seems to draw out the spiritual implications. So, if you you read through that, even God so loved the world, He sent His Son, so that whoever believes in Him, he, as you read through that passage, you think, now is Jesus still speaking, or is this John reporting on the conversation that he had with Nicodemus? There's this sort of so in tune with who His beloved Saviour is that He seems to draw out the implications, and it doesn't seem to. Um, I didn't seem to be so worried about it as we are. We need to. We, we would like to have some speech. Oh, well, I would anyway. I'd like to have some speech marks to tell me when the quote ends. But he, he doesn't do that. Uh, Eusebius called uh, called called the Gospel of John the spiritual gospel because he's always drawing out the spiritual implications of things. What was John's purpose? Well, fortunately, he tells us in chapter twenty and verse. 31. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. I think that's why uh, historically lots of churches have given out John's Gospels 
evangelistically. All these things have been written so that you might believe. It, it's slightly more complicated than that, in that John writes in uh, what's called the present continuous tense, which means what he's saying is, it means to be continually doing something. So he's saying, these things are written so that you might go on believing and therefore go on experiencing life in his name. So he's, he's, you know, it's very easy if you get used to the habit of going to church and singing the songs and doing the readings, standing and kneeling or whatever your tradition is. It's very easy to just get into a habit. And uh, particularly if you, like they were living in times of doctrinal controversy and heresy, it's easy to just lose the plot. And he's saying, no, I'm writing these things because I want you to go on believing and I want you to go on really experiencing life in his name. I think I, I find that a challenging thought, don't you? Am, am, I, am I continuing to experience the life of God because I'm continuing to keep believing in Jesus? It's a sort of, I don't want you to become nominal. I don't want you to drift away from the true faith. And I don't want you to become nominal. I want you to really believe in my name and to experience life. So it looks like it was written to perhaps Jews who are living in a, in a Greek world to help them hold on to their faith, not lose their grasp on who Jesus is, but continue in their faith to keep experiencing life in his name, especially in the context of their, their faith being challenged by false doctrine. What does eternal life mean? I think it means both quality and quantity. So there's the up and down thing. Eternal life means a life from above, spiritual life, abundant life. But it's also quantity. It's everlasting. And John says you can carry on experiencing that quality of life and that quantity of life by believing, by having continuing, ongoing faith in his name. Uh, The Gospel of John uses the word faith 98 times, so it's obviously very important to the apostle and there are levels of meaning to the word faith so I I believe in Jesus well that that could mean I I have faith that he existed that I've read the story it could mean I I believe that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world that's great so that means to believe something is factually true well that's that's great that's That's progress, although the Apostle James says even the demons believe that uh, and get very nervous about it. So, so, but it's that's that's an aspect of faith. But then there's the then there's faith as trust, active trust. See, I I believe in parachutes. I've seen them on telly. I believe in parachutes, but that that's entirely different to jumping out of a plane. Do you see the do you see the difference? (laughs) That's when you find out if you believe in parachutes. That, in other words, to trust is not just to believe in a parachute, it's to trust in that parachute as I depend upon it. Do you see? So it's like, uh, do you remember the story of um, Blonda, Blondin, I don't know how you pronounce his name, the, the famous tightrope walker who walked over Niagara Falls, 1,300 feet, and uh, a two-inch diameter rope, amazing guy, and he, he attracted huge crowds to Niagara Falls, and uh, he went across it, he walked backwards across it, he cooked a breakfast in the middle of it, he, he at one point did some somersaults and uh, and then at one point he, he walked along a wheelbarrow uh, 
without the tire, with a little um, thing that would notch to fit into the rope. And and he said to the crowd, "Who who believes I can walk across Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow?" Yes, yes. And, and then he said, turned to his manager and said, "Well, will you sit in it?" <laughs> Do you see? Now that's that's those two types of faith are entirely different, aren't they? Do you see? And that's what John's saying. Uh, there's there's life by continuing to trust in His name. There's trusting in the truth and acting on the basis of it. And then thirdly, faith means to go on believing. That's the present continuous that John's writing in. We go on. In fact, in Greek, faith and faithfulness are the same word. So there's the first steps of faith and then there's the ongoing walking in faithfulness. Faith is a very dynamic thing. So, uh, so John is emphasising, I'm writing this so you keep believing, keep trusting. Keep, and as you keep trusting and keep believing and act on that, then you'll keep receiving life in my name. It's that living connection that he wants, uh, which is a great challenge. It's exciting, the possibilities, and, and a bit of a challenge to us as well. So he says in, in John 15, very similarly, uh, I'm the vine. Uh, the vine in the Old Testament was always used as a picture of the, the people of God. <laughs> it's like saying, I'm the people of God, I'm your source of life. You are branches. In other words, keep, keep that living connection to me. So he wants them to continue in faith and therefore experience continuing life. He also wants them to continue in the truth about who Jesus is. Uh, at this time, possibly AD 9000, there was a lot of controversy which continued in the early church and heresy about who is Jesus. Perhaps Michael will talk a bit more about that later, I don't know. Um, and all sorts of things, people were writing imaginative gospels and, and fairy stories and the stories of Jesus as a little boy making clay birds and blowing them and then they all fly off. And There's all sorts of strange things going, going around uh, although the Gospels don't record of any miracles done by Jesus in his early life and, until he's baptised and filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, but he wants them to continue in the truth of who Jesus is. Uh, better pause, so I've got a note here. Pause and ask if there's any clarifying questions. Which I may not be able to answer. It's either very clear or with... Oh, good. Yeah, I know the story. I, I, maybe I've missed that out. I don't know. Is that only in John as well? Yes. I don't know if that's, to be honest, I, don't, I confess, I don't know if that's only in John or not. If it is only in John, then that would be another example. Um, it's a great story. No, no, but uh, Michael. I'll make a note of that now. <laughs> cool, thank you. It's good. I'm improving my notes. <laughs> good. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. 
I think John is possibly less bothered about it. One example would be, for example, the cleansing of the temple. So all, uh, all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, have that when in Jesus's last journey, as he becomes, there's more argument, more tension building up. He becomes more provocative, goes into the temple, knocks over the, there's trading in the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be the place where all, all the nations could go in and pray to God. But uh, they're, they're on the make. They invented temple currency, so you can't use your drachmas. You have to change that into, you know, cathedral money, temple money. And, and uh, uh, that's the only thing that's acceptable. And they're, they're making money, and it's, it's become like sort of Lidl and Aldi, but, but religious stuff as well. And it, so he gets very cross, knocks it all over, and, uh, which is illustrative of what he is going to do. Your way to access God is now changing. Um, You've always gone to temples, to special places. Jesus is the temple. He's now the presence of God on earth. And uh, everything is going to be turned upside down. Now, John, all the Gospels put that at the end. John puts it right at the beginning. I think it's chapter 2, maybe, or 3. But So, so um, now, either Jesus did that twice. That's a possibility that Jesus did it. At this, uh, uh, or, um, or John is saying... Uh, actually, I'm putting this at the beginning because this guy has come to turn everything upside down. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? And, and I think we, we are much more bothered about things being in order than John would have been. Uh, because we, that's the way, that's our worldview, that's our way of thinking. Um, so, so we don't actually know, did Jesus do that twice? Um, but very possibly it did happen historically at the end. But John says, hey, for my purposes, that's a, that's a great story. And he's constructing a gospel for his purposes. And so he puts it at the beginning. But it's not a timeline gospel in the sense that the others seem to be. So we don't, the simple answer is we, we don't know. And I don't think it matters. Because <laughs> I didn't think about thing, things. I mean, nowadays you've got to get absolutely everything in the right order and well, that didn't and then you get disputes when people just bring out a normal biography you get disputes about that didn't happen then and that happened that's the way we think but but the, in the in this age they didn't all think like that so john is constructing his gospel of true events but whether a timeline mattered to him is is a matter for dispute i think so i, I don't know that it matters very much but it is interesting that all the others put it at the end he puts it in the beginning so it's all history but the way they viewed history in in a that context might be very different to the way you view history so you know the what's the saying the past is a different country they do things differently there uh, so it's, it's it's uh it's hard for us to appreciate that so yeah so that's all i can say on that subject i don't know if others have got good good question Cool. Okay. So John's John's uh, purpose we've done. Uh, John seemed to be correcting at least two errors that existed that time in Ephesus. Um, uh, and one is a, a too high a view of John the Baptist. So I know it's later, but um, you may remember the story in, in Acts 19, the Apostle Paul uh, rocks up and he finds a, a group that seem to be believers and um and and but and yet as, as he meets with them and talks to them he thinks there's there's something 
not quite right about this group. I don't, uh, I don't know if you ever if, if you ever visit other churches or groups. You, you, you take, it's quite interesting, isn't it? You you think, oh, why are they doing that that way? And, oh, we don't stand up for that bit. We always kneel for that bit. And you know, it's it's quite interesting. So the apostles sussing them out, and and um, after a while, he says, oh, it could be. So he says, now when you when you believe, did did you receive the Holy Spirit? Good question. So I say. I don't know, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we've not heard of, we've not heard of this Holy Spirit. Tell, tell us more. And he thinks, oh, well, that's interesting. So then he goes, then he goes back a bit more, and he says, well, tell me what, um, what, what baptism did you receive? Uh, and then they say, oh, we, we were b- baptized as followers of, of John. And then, then, then he goes back again. He says, oh, John, that's great. Well, you know, he taught us there was someone coming after, and then he explained Jesus to them, and then they become. Uh, become Christians, put their faith in the Lord Jesus, and then he uh, prays and they receive uh, the Holy Spirit. So, uh, but, so there were groups in the early church that were still following and honouring John the Baptist. Uh, those particular ones, Paul led to faith. But as John writes, some, there are still groups of people that venerate John the Baptist. They really respect him. They, they, they're followers of John the Baptist. And they're in danger of becoming a sect of Christianity, uh, focusing particularly on the need for repentance, which is a good thing and a gift from God, uh, and leading a moral life, which is what John called people to do, didn't he? Repent, turn, be kind to people, give your cloak out, be nice, uh, repent from your evil ways and expect someone to come. So there was little emphasis in such groups on Jesus or the Holy Spirit. And John corrects that. He corrects it negatively. So he makes a point in chapter 1, verse 6 following. Now, John the Baptist wasn't the light, but he was a a pointer to that light that was to come into the world. Uh, He makes a point of saying later on in the Gospel, (laughs) now remember, John the Baptist didn't do any of these miracles. He didn't do these signs. That, That was, Jesus did the signs. John the Baptist didn't do them. Uh, he makes a point of recording John the Baptist himself said that he should decrease and Jesus should increase. So that's the sort of what what John says negatively about John the Baptist, if, if you like. That's probably the wrong expression, but that's what he says. Uh, but he also re- corrects that view but positively by, by recording John the Baptist's words. For example, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, where, where John says, Look, the Lamb of God. Who's going to take away the sin of the world? That's, that's John the Baptist saying, look, he, he's the one. It's, it's him. It's not about me. It's about him. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And his, his followers would certainly understand that, that reference back to the Old Testament Passover, where, where the Lamb was slain so that the people's sins would be covered and the, the angel of judgment would pass over the people of God. And fact John the Baptist says I'm not even really worthy to undo his shoelaces so so that's possibly uh, one of the errors that John is correcting and he also says not only is Jesus the Lamb of God but Jesus is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit drench you in Holy Spirit so John the Baptist's followers later had forgotten that only Jesus can take away sin only Jesus can fill people with the Holy Spirit and without that they and we are left with a kind of belief in God and a, and a religious morality. 
Uh, and John is saying, I, I don't want you to just have a belief in God and a religious morality. I want you to trust in Jesus who takes away sin and empowers you with his Holy Spirit. So there's too high a view of John the Baptist and alongside that, therefore, too low a view of Jesus. <coughs> now, Greek, Greek philosophy, as we've already said, had a strong influence. And I've talked about the above below thing before. Um, the physical and the spiritual and all of that. And, uh, uh, of course, as I've already said about politicians, theologians and philosophers, they love a good argument. Uh, so Plato, he, he said, of course, the, the superior one is, is the, the spiritual. That's much more real. And, um, and then Aristotle, whose name you may well have heard of, he said, no, it's the physical stuff. It's the physical stuff. That's real. You can touch it and feel it. That's, that's the most important thing. And, uh, and then they just argue about it so whatever side whatever side you're on uh, if you're a, a greek thinker you would really struggle with the idea that jesus was both at the same time and theologians obviously centuries have, have grappled with that haven't they can jesus be both physical and spiritual fully human but divine <coughs> earthly born of a woman but but heavenly and so they got into error through the, because of that, that worldview and difficulty and because it's a mystery who can, who can fully comprehend such a thing. Uh, so they got into errors in a number of ways. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because um, uh, I don't want to impinge on Michael's territory. But some would say, some at, the, at that time in history would say, well, is Jesus more, is he more divine, more God than man? Maybe, maybe they say, maybe he just sort of appeared as a human, looked a bit human. Um, that that heresy, heresy became known as docetism, uh, which is from a word meaning a phantom. He just, woo, uh, you know, he looks like a man, he talks like a man, but really he can appear in rooms. So that's after his resurrection. But do you know what I mean? He's saying, he's saying he wasn't really. It's so in that view, Jesus only seemed human, <coughs> but never really experienced what it means to be human. Uh, another heresy was the opposite way round. Is Jesus actually more more human than God? So it's people s- struggling, grappling with with these ideas, trying to understand the Lord Jesus. So some said he's a man, but he's a man who, who sort of responded perfectly to God and and developed this this capacity for godness that we all have. And uh, <coughs> that kind of thinking is often called adoptionism. That Jesus was a man, but he was adopted as God's son. Um, usually, uh, those who believe that, talk about his baptism, where, where he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, God said, this is my beloved son. So some, some have seized upon that and said, oh, that's, he was just a bloke. But at that point, he, he became m- m- more of a goddy bloke. <laughs> that's not the way they say it, but you understand. And that, that's an error that's still around today. Uh, as is the third one. Is Jesus sort of part, part human, part human, part divine? Uh, sort of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would be more along that line, that we see Jesus as a sort of semi-human, semi-divine, the first among created beings. And John is very keen to, to, um, to not have anything to do with that. So he says in, from the very beginning, no, the word was God. The word was with God and the word 
was God. Uh, in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they have to insert a little A that's not there in the text. The word was a God. Um, so uh, what John presents is a Jesus who is fully human and fully divine. So John's gospel, as we'll, we'll see after, a, after the coffee break, uh, emphasises both Jesus' humanity and Jesus's divinity. Uh, only someone who's fully human can be our representative uh, and only God can conquer death and offer eternal life. So I've got a paraphrase of um, John chapter 1 verse 14. Uh, so this divine person was the reason who was the reason behind our whole universe changed into a human being and pitched his tent among ours. We were spectators of his dazzling brilliance, which could only have radiated from God's very own son.